Conversations on Economic Opportunity, produced by Ann Arbor Spark. Ann Arbor Spark is a public private academic partnership that's creating economic activity and prosperity in the Ann Arbor region. Innovative businesses and leaders are what make Ann Arbor a destination for startups and growing global businesses. By sharing their stories, they share what makes this region stand out for the exceptional schools, abundant parks, amazing community services that all contribute to our quality of life. Conversations on economic opportunity are a way to spotlight those who are helping this region thrive. Joining me today is Dave Egner, President and CEO of the Ralph Wilson Jr. Foundation. Thanks for coming in, Dave, and as we were just chatting, this is a very snowy day all right. of a sudden, <laughs> so glad to have you here. Um, I usually like to start off these conversations with uh, asking people to sort of introduce themselves to the audience. So Dave, you've been a leader in Southeast Michigan uh, in a number of capacities. Uh, as I said, you know, I know you in terms of, of leading foundation-based efforts um, to uh, make investments in many initiatives to positively affect the regional economy, uh, to help disadvantaged populations participate. But I, I always like to get a little autobiography when we start these to help our audience know you. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you went to school, uh, what your career path was leading up to your current position leading Ralph Sure, it, not a traditional foundation path if, if that exists. Uh, anyway, the, um, I'm a product of uh, the St. Louis, Missouri area, so another Rust Belt city. Actually grew up in East St. Louis. So, oh, uh, across the river. Across the river, and East St. Louis was always known as uh, one of the roughest cities yeah. in America, and and uh, was lucky to grow up at a time when it was a very diverse population. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my real claim to fame is I ran on the same track as Jackie Joyner Kersey. Okay. Um, Jackie and as I were fast? born. In, <laughs> not as fast, no. Um, we were born in the same hospital on the same day. Okay. Um, so I've the few times we've met. Um, I certainly remember her. I'm sure she doesn't remember me. We've noted that people that were born on that day in East St. Louis were all amazingly successful, had brilliant careers, and were, were strikingly attractive. So okay. um, from there, went to uh, my undergrads, Westminster College, Fulton, Missouri. Okay. Home of the Iron Curtain speech. Yes, definitely. I just read uh, the Churchill uh, particular biography to describe that. Truman, as a guy from Missouri, asked Churchill if he'd speak in his home state. And his chief of staff was had graduated from Westminster, mm -hmm. so that's why the speech was there. And there's a there's a 17th century Christopher Wren church. Yeah, that sits in the middle of Fulton, Missouri. Uh, that's where my undergrad is, so liberal arts. Okay. And then um, after a, a bevy of jobs um, and activities, landed at the Kellogg Foundation in Battle Creek as executive assistant to the chair of the foundation. Um, that was in 1989. Okay. So found my way to philanthropy that way, and Michigan that way, and then uh, 97 ended up at uh, Hudson Weber Foundation. Right. Stopped at the Michigan Nonprofit Association in between, and then a new economy initiative in 2009, uh, as well as Hudson Weber. And I've been in this job since January of 2016. Okay, so remind me, the, the structure around new economy was really, uh, was an attempt by a number of foundations to do things collectively, right? Ten foundations uh, pooled $100 million, with the focus being economic development. Um, two big lessons learned in that process. One, get, trying to get ten foundations to agree on anything is near impossible. Uh -huh. um, and two, don't pull a pot of money unless you know exactly what to do with, what to do with it. So the, the first 18 months to 24 months of that um, program 
was uh, a great gnashing of teeth, uh, headbutting research. What do we do and how do we spend this money together? Mm -hmm. And I stepped in um, about 18 to 24 months in and, and focused it exclusively in the entrepreneurial space. Okay, yeah, I know. It's, uh, I had a lot of experience during my time in Cleveland with the Cleveland Foundation and the Gunn Foundation and, and know how uh, important um, those resources can be to affect catalytic catalytic change, which kind of takes us to Ralph Wilson. So, um, you know, what, what I know is that the, the Wilson Foundation is fantastically endowed uh, foundation that's focusing on Southeast Michigan and the Buffalo area. Um, so who was Ralph Wilson um, and why did he set up the foundation? So pretty remarkable guy. Ralph, um, Ralph grew up in Southeast Michigan. His father was in the insurance industry, very close to his dad. His values came from his, his father. And um, he went off to war in World War II. He was the commander of a minesweeper. Wow. Uh, we jokingly say that must be where he got his tolerance for risk because he was the guy running toward the mines, not away from yeah. them. Um, Mr. Wilson had a brilliant military career, which he seldom talked about, like many of those people in World War II. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They were so modest in their work. Um, while Ralph was certainly successful in the insurance industry. He, um, he was somewhat bored uh, doing that work. So he was really the guy that struck out and loved to do the other industries. So okay. at one time he was in 11 industries. Wow. Um, built quite a fortune. One of those industries were professional sports, mm -hmm. thoroughbred racehorses, and uh, one of the founders of the American Football League. Okay, and he was the uh, owner, I believe, of the Buffalo Bills. He owned the Buffalo Bills, um, which is a remarkable story in its own right. He, uh, the Miami, market turned him down. Mm. Um, they had had a bad experience with semi-pro football okay. and said, you can't use the Orange Bowl. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm out then. And uh, a few months later, they, he was, got a call back from Lamar Hunt who said, we got to have an eighth team. How about Buffalo? Mm -hmm. And uh, they were hungry for football. And mm -hmm. 54 years, Mr. Wilson uh, mm. owned the Buffalo Bills. Never left the market, even though he had offers to move and make mm -hmm. a lot more money in a bigger market. It's a, just an incredible entrepreneurial story in itself. I mean, I know a little bit about how the AFL started and, and then the fact that it grew to be able to say, you know, we can merge with the NFL uh, and, and the, you know, so as they say, the rest is In, rest in pretty is quick fashion, and a lot of that was Ralph. He, Mr. Wilson was was really vigilant about the TV rights <coughs> and making sure they got enough money to compete through mm -hmm. that. So $25,000 he put in to form the league office. Uh, upon his death in 2014, the team sold several months later for $1.4 Yeah, it's a nice investment. It's incredible. I have a, as I mentioned uh, just a little while ago when I was in Cleveland, I, I was involved when the Browns left Cleveland and then they got to, to the, uh, the, 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 the replacement Browns. Browns the yes. new Browns. And what was interesting is to understand the, the value of that franchise from when um, that owner bought it in 1963, and I think he bought it for like a million dollars at that time. So Mr. because Mr. Wilson was in the AFL, it was a different pricing structure. But right. even then, and that was back in the day where the, they, they had what they called the taxi squad, and what that really was was the players actually off-season drove taxis because they didn't they make all that yeah, money. Yeah, they couldn't afford to do but anything yeah, else. So the, the, the one kicker was Lou Groza, which you may, I'm dating myself, he had an insurance agency in town. That was it for the rest of his life. That was who he was. Well, anyway, Amazing. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the things, we, we sort of have a tie to the foundation in a, in a sense that uh, Skip Sims, who's our senior VP for entrepreneurial, 
services here, worked uh, for, for Mr. Wilson at one time, I think helping him with some, when he was involved in some venture uh, capital kinds of so investments. So Skip, Skip had two lives with Mr. Wilson, and, and Skip has said to me a number of times, best boss he ever had. Uh, and, and as I learned more about, I didn't have the privilege of knowing mm -hmm. Ralph, but the, the more I learn about Mr. Wilson, the more I understand many people Why felt people that say way. That. Skip started with him in TV. And so Skip was in broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Mr. Wilson was selling the stations, he called Skip in and said, I'm worried about you. Where are you going to land? Right. And um, that moved him into venture. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that all that, that experience he gained there has been really incredibly valuable to Spark. Uh, uh, Skip's employee number two here. So he's, he's been at Spark since the beginning and has a lot to do with our success in that early stage company. Um, well, and you're gonna, at some point, I know, Paul, we're going to talk about uh, our, one of our grants to, to Spark, but one of the reasons we did that particular grant is Skip Sims. Yeah. Without Skip, um, that grant doesn't go. He's, mm -hmm. the, he's the guy that knows how to grease the, the skids and push the cars on, on this work. And, 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 and we, we have built incredible credibility around, around that expertise. So, well, let's, let's take a step back. So we, we talked about where the foundation came from. Uh, I mentioned that it was incredibly endowed. Uh, what's the size? So that's a, Mr. Wilson um, only had two provisions for the foundation. One was the appointment of four life trustees. And he said to those four, that was his, his uh, wife, his niece, his closest business ally in all the businesses, Jeff Littman, and Eugene Dreiger, his attorney. And he essentially said, you figure it out. I'm not telling you where to spend it or what to spend it on. It's, it's yours to figure out. But the second provision was spend it in 20 years. And the clock started ticking on the transfer of funds January 8th of okay. 2015. So if you're keeping score, we have 16 years, 10 months, and seven days left from the time of this recording. So the notion is that the, the, these resources would be spent and to, to have an immediate impact, yes. where some people endow a foundation that lives, some of them are longer than a century now. Uh, We're very, some are, I think the older foundations are close to a century old. Um, what, what Mr. Wilson thought was, I, I want to see this spent to have impact now. I do want the work to proceed beyond the foundation's mm -hmm. life but I want to see it spent when somebody who knew me is still around to make sure it's running the way I would have had it run. Yeah. So he, the original gift was about 1.2 billion. Wow. Um, that was made, so January 2015. We have moved about 180 million in grants in the last three years. And thanks to the stock market, we're going backwards. We're currently worth about 1.35 billion. Okay. So um, you can see the burn rate's got to, got to uh, grow substantially over the course of our life. So, so I, I mentioned at the beginning, it does have a geographic focus. Uh, Western New York, nine counties, seven counties in southeast Michigan. So okay, okay. We're the only spin-down foundation of this size with that small a geography. Okay. So the challenge for us is building capacity inside of institutions uh, so that they can absorb the capital. Okay. So from, a, from, from an objective's point of view, what is it that, uh, as you said, he... he said, I want you to figure this out. Um, what are the foundation, is, what's the, what is the foundation's uh, target, focus? What, what are you trying to accomplish with it? And is it, is it different between the two communities or is it the same? It's, uh, the, the missions and themes are the same, but the approach is a bit different because the infrastructure is different okay. and the capacity is different. But four major pillars, uh, children and youth, and under that moniker is um, early childhood. And uh, we're, we're just, getting scans back from Western New York to, to find out where to play in that space okay. there in, in 
Southeast Michigan, lots of foundations playing, and we're trying to be a good partner in that space. After school, um, not formal K-12 curriculum, but those things that come outside of the curriculum, whether they're in school time or after school. It's, after school is a, a phrase that captures all of that um, in the market. And specifically, that's starting to lean towards STEM. Can we really focus on those things that have kids better prepared to be employed later? Okay. A third piece under children and youth is sports and recreation, um, which seemed like a natural with the Buffalo Bills. Mm -hmm. the, we did some early scans and the numbers were stunning to us. So the Center for Disease Control says every kid should get two hours of, or an hour of exercise a day. And we found that uh, on, in the U.S., 27% of kids were actually getting wow. that hour of exercise a day. Um, in Southeast Michigan, it's 13%. So this is a, this is a health crisis in the making. If we can, uh, the current cohort of kids in school, if we could get them all active, the downstream, or get mm -hmm. them to 25%, not even 27, the downstream healthcare savings is $1.2 billion. So that's, that's substantial. And taxpayers are going to pay for that. So we, we think we got to get kids active and healthy fast. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the sort of the retrenchment. I mean, there's, you know, again, we probably, when we have these conversations, you date yourself. But when we were in school, that was an important part of, right. of the day, much like art or music or other things. And as public education is sort of retrenched, those things have shrunken and gone away. Or you find them in more affluent schools, uh, not in, in schools in more disadvantaged communities. Right? Absolutely, and the, the really interesting data around this is what happens with the discretionary time. So physical education in school is one thing. But um, think about how many kids did not ride bikes when you were a kid. I didn't know anybody didn't have a bike. That's correct. In uh, Southeast or Michigan. rode a bike to school. Or, or absolutely, yeah. And, Southeast Michigan, 64% of kids ride bikes. So 36% of kids don't, don't. ride bikes. Uh, I, I had somebody beating on the door all summer long to play uh -huh. sandlot baseball sure. or basketball. 4% of kids play baseball close to home. 8% mm -hmm. um, of kids play basketball close to home. So the, the play time that we had that was free time right. is gone. Right, right. Uh, so we, we've got to remedy that. So we're starting to, to build some programs okay. around that. Another program focus is uh, young adults working families. Uh, read that as workforce education. And we're specifically focused on those uh, middle wage, middle skilled jobs that don't require a four year degree. So it's where we're seeing the gaps currently. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to um, couple that work with what we're learning about the future of work. Because if we train folks for jobs that aren't going to be here in 10 years, we've not done much good. Mm -hmm. So that, that is underway, lots of scans and studies in mm -hmm. that space at this time as well. Mm -hmm. And that's our interest in your mobility work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's the whole notion, uh, I think the, you know, where, where we're having this conversation in time here, the governor's just talked a lot about uh, these issues just recently uh, in his quote, Marshall Plan. And I think the, the one thing that resonates in all of that is this notion of lifelong learning, this, this notion of um, do people, um, approach that education with credentials that help them as as they are progressing in their career and how do we how do we sort of inculcate that in people's thinking as opposed to well, I went to college or I went to community college and I'm done and right. so now I'm going to have this career that I'm prepared for when as you say we have 
we have no idea uh, what, what jobs there are going to be five years from now, let alone even longer than that. The analogy I've stolen over the years is we've got to build rock climbers instead of ladder climbers. So I'll have a career and I'll climb a ladder. Well, rock climbers don't go straight up. They've got to go side, they have to see the opportunity of the openings and go for them, whether that's backwards, forwards, sideways, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have people thinking about the careers in that same way, uh, there's no way we can keep up with the changing yeah. market. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, given, given the incredible demand for uh, talent um, across the country right now in, in certain fields, um, how we can help people find that first rock to put the first hold on is really, really important. Sure. So you've been in, as you said, you started, you've, you've put, you know, haven't, haven't touched the corpus, but uh, have made some grants. What are some of the investments against those pillars that, that uh, we, would, we would be interested in? So the, um, um, if we look at a press release that just went out today, we've funded a $10 million initiative called Built to Play. We go back to the uh, sports and recreation and this notion of free play. Uh, and, and giving kids the opportunity to do their own thing mm -hmm. instead of um, in being in leagues or, or uh, in positions where the parents are running the thing. We, this is a, it's a really creative partnership. It's the Tony Hawk Foundation, uh, okay. Tony Hawk the Skateboarder. Sure. They're going to build skate parks. Kaboom is going to build, uh, they're going to do two things. They're going to build in both regions, uh, both Western New York and Southeast Michigan, they're going to build uh, two signature parks really big play areas that will be a destination. I'm more excited about the second thing they're going to do, um, play spaces in unlikely places, swings at bus stops, okay, uh, soccer fields that could be built uh, in a housing complex that's L-shaped instead of shaped like a real field. Okay, it's, Where can you give kids an opportunity to just erupt into play? Mm. And so that, that announcement uh, was today, and there's a process in place, but we're going to see 40-plus parks built in both markets. Cool. Um, to get kids playing. Um, you know, I gave the first two pillars, and if you really look at it, there's two, there's four pillars and eight programs. So um, caregivers is another one we're working in. Mm -hmm. How do we increase the number of caregivers and meet their needs? We're doing a, uh, we're looking at uh, some creative work with the Cleveland Clinic in both markets in that space. And then this livable commu community space where we have parks, trails, green design, mm -hmm. um, Economic development is mm -hmm. in that space and nonprofit productivity. So in the economic development space, um, in Western New York, we've just done a scan of the market and the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Here, um, a couple of good grants to you guys. One mm -hmm. in mobility. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, we've got to start thinking about mobility from a standpoint of job creation, mm -hmm. not just the concept. Right. Uh, which we've not done a very good job yet because it's, uh, it's so new and moving so quickly. And then how do we buttress this uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem, be it grassroots or high growth, so that we get capital and training that's actually focused on job growth, mm -hmm. um, not just startups as we think of them, but growing existing businesses as well. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that we're focused on, um, we're in the midst of a strategic plan update um, now uh, that we're going to talk about at the, we'll mention that in a little while, the annual meeting that you're going to keynote. And, and we're really kind of honing in on um, scaling startups. That, you know, That's the issue. We, we've really had is. a lot of success here uh, with um, generating new company ideas. Um, the, the, obviously, there's a, an entrepreneurial culture here. 
a lot of it fed by the University of Michigan, but a lot of it that it's uh, becoming much more indigenous. But you know, the, the thing that, that it gives you pause is if, if what you're doing is creating startups so they're acquired and they go to somebody else and they grow someplace else, <coughs> well, you've, you've helped the overall ecosystem and the economy, but what have you done to really right. you know, move the needle in, in your own economy? So, so we've had some recent success with some people growing to scale here, but the, but the, the notion is we've got to find, there's two parts to it. One is you've got to have the idea, uh, you've got to have the product, the service, whatever, that is scalable, but then you've got to have the leadership that wants to grow a company. And so that's what we're trying to ferret out and then really putting resources behind uh, people that are, are have that mentality and, and that mentality about doing it here. Do we have enough of those here, Paul? Uh, you know, I don't think, I think, we, I think we're beginning, at least my, my take over, over the time I've been here, there's been tremendous strides made I think uh, here in Ann Arbor and in Southeast Michigan, uh, that we're at a much better place than we were a decade or a decade or a half ago. But what we need now is to have some of those folks that have had success continue that process. Um, but again, it's it's it may be trite to say you know you're looking for the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs, but what the analogy is. They weren't just interested in, oh, I've got this idea and I've, I've built something that's got a value, but it was I want to build something uh, much larger and much more uh, impactful, right? And I want to be the one who does that. That's a right. different skill set, I think. Yeah, it's, 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 much, um, it's a much different skill set than the I'll start it and exit, Yeah, which yeah. we've done pretty well here. Yeah, and I mean, and, and if you go back to our heritage, um, the, the first Silicon Valley, um, was those were guys that wanted to build, you could go through the names in the automobile industry, um, those were guys that wanted to build companies. They weren't just, oh, I invented, I invented the Model T here, take it and I'll sit back and, and be done. Be done, right, I'm, right? All, I'm, I'm yeah. all done. No, no reason to grow it anymore. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me that it's the culture of the auto industry over time that moved us away from that scaling and away from those kind of entrepreneurial skills. That's right. to protect it as opposed right. to continue to innovate. That's yeah. right. But I think, we, I think we have a distinctive, you know, one of the things that is our advantage now is that um, um, we're, we're an easier place for that to happen than some other places around the country now. So if we can, if we can put the right, right things together, I think we can have some success. Well, you talked about, um, you know, that there have been two awards to us, and we're very grateful for that. One was for uh, some preliminary work uh, in support of the American Center for Mobility. Um, we needed some help to message what we were doing. Um, we, we were doing a lot of stuff, but how were we messaging it? And uh, then, then most recently, and something that we're really excited about was a program concept to identify and educate high net worth individuals um, in Southeast Michigan about the opportunity for angel investment in early stage companies. Um, what was important to, to you when, when you, the foundation when you looked at those ideas? Well, on the, the mobility, I think it speaks for itself. It's, um, if we miss this one, um, you talk about throwing a softball. If we miss this one, shame on us. And, I'm, and I lose a lot of hope for the future of our region. Um, when automotive, um, the automotive grew up here, right. they built the infrastructure here, and we should be the leaders in mobility. Right. Uh, and you can argue all you want. Well, the brain power is in Silicon Valley. The weather's better. Well, a lot of brain power here. One and two. I don't want automated vehicles and mobility tested in good weather. I want it tested in bad weather. Um, so bring it on. This this should be the spot that we build it. Plus, 
we've got this beautiful international border. If we're talking about systems yes. and uh, protocols, we're talking about systems restrictions and, and uh, processes, you want this to be my national. Mm -hmm. So there's this great opportunity to take advantage of that border. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other piece that you know validates the sort of what we're doing is the fact that so many other places have an aspiration to have that, and are trying to do that. And I think the good news is that um, at least at this moment we've got we've got a first mover advantage in the type of thing we're doing there, and so we so we need to we need to maintain it for sure. Um, and so that's why we were really uh, very aggressive in trying to support that project, and and, and still now really involved. In making it happen, and to your point, it was interesting. Um, you know, we got the the initial phase up and running. Um, much more to build, much more money to raise. But um, the the first phase was this highway speed loop with the tunnel, and uh, it opened I think December 12th. And uh, Vistian was on the site wanting to test because of the weather. This okay, so um, you know, a lot of the world is in this climate that we're in. A lot of it is not. Uh, in the beautiful uh, California sun. Right. So. Well, and then the other piece of this, I, I want to make sure we don't leave out, Paul, is the workforce piece. So right. what, is the, what is the workforce of a mobility economy versus an automobile economy look like? Um, we've got to start thinking about that now and building those skills in the systems now. So we've, we, I think that we've lost the middle class, uh, that we've lost to date because um, we simply have not been looking toward this future. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the jobs that where we have gaps, we did no training to fill in those jobs. Um, and we did not get employer-driven processes to start to, to demand a different kind of output. So there's a chance to get ahead of it in mobility. Mm -hmm. And I think that's mm -hmm. another great advantage in why we made the grant. Yeah, and I think the, the, the thing that's interesting is the two things kind of go together, at least in my mind. Um, the, the, this notion of, um, you know, you said sort of the phrase you used is after school, and I think that's mm -hmm. got a lot of different connotations, after school meaning after my formal education, perhaps, and, and particularly in the mobility space, there's going to be so many different kinds of jobs needed or skills needed that you're going to have to train yourself for. I mean, one of the things we were struck by recently when we were out on the coast was some of our companies are out there. And you have very creative uh, delivery mechanisms to train people to be coders because the mobility uh, industry needs lots of computer code written. And it wasn't, it's not a formal, it's not a, it's more like Grand Circus kind of model mm -hmm. uh, where they're training IT people in sort of that credential based way. But if you think about it, okay, well, we should be doing that too. And it kind of gets to your, to your point. So how can, we, how can we build programs to train coders so people are trained here? to serve the mobility uh, industry as, as an example. So we, let's, let's talk, change gears a little bit about the other project and, and the, the notion of sort of unlocking um, uh, wealth that's here that may be investing someplace else as opposed to here. So that, that was, a, that was a really one of those no-brainer grants. One, because you had Skip Sims working right. on it as we talked. But uh, what we lacked was an organization and an individual or two focused on this issue. Um, there's no question we have people of wealth, mm -hmm. but no one was trying to help focus. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what philanthropy can do, it can't be the market, it can't replace the market, but it should be able to subsidize and stimulate. So by providing some staff dollars and program dollars to get the angel funds to start to mm -hmm. talk to each other, to look at some deals collectively, 
to, uh, to look at how to approach uh, some, some folks of means that might invest that have not. We need somebody every day waking up yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. So that's, that's why we did it. Yeah, and we, you know, one of the things, we were pleased uh, that, that, you know, there was receptiveness to the proposal. I mean, one of the things, we've talked about it in the podcast before, but um, this is kind of an outgrowth of, A, the work we've done in, with early stage companies, but about, well, I think three years ago, the state approached us and said, uh, could Spark figure out how to run a statewide uh, program uh, around and an angel creating an angel fund, and then the very notion was very much that unlike the coasts where people are uh, very familiar with going to a restaurant and somebody pitching them with the deal and saying, okay, I'll write a check here, there 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 wasn't that kind of expertise. So um, we did that. We were on our third fund, and um, but the way for us to have more impact in that area is to, to partner with you so that we're creating capability. Um, that more of those resources come forward. And one of the things we keep, we keep his ears are probably burning, but one of the things that Skip uh, has uh, taught me is, is that if you look, compare angel investment to venture capital investment, angel investment is something like two times Amazing, uh, the, the venture capital investment. So we all, we all look at the media and the Wall Street Journal or whatever, and we talk about all this venture capital investment, but this is private individuals who are making uh, essentially entrepreneurial decisions, I think you might have a, something that can turn into a business and I want to support you. Uh, it, it's, it's really important. It, it, question, it brings in the question, why do we use venture as the metric, doesn't it? Well, it kind of does. Uh, it does, it does. Well, you know, to close out, we're really very excited that you're going to be the keynote speaker at our annual meeting on April 17th. For us, it's a really important, it's become an important annual gathering here. Um, uh, over the last five years, um, we didn't do it before that, and we're 13 years old now. So in the last five years, it's become really important, kind of showcasing the sort of the private, public, academic, and nonprofit organizations that are involved in our partnership. Um, you know, we're interested in, in getting a, 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 a big picture view from, from you. You've raised some of the issues now. What are the kind of things, themes that you might be be talking about? I plan to read it just the way you write it, Paul. So. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it'll be worth spending some time to talk about the barriers. Why haven't we attacked some of these issues? Yeah. What stopped yeah. us? Uh, what in our what in our history or uh, has have created the fears, uh, or or perhaps the the systems that have stopped us from yeah. moving forward? So, I want to spend a little time with that and. And I also really wanted to focus on the notion of the assets. We've, we've got more assets we in do. this region than exist in, in uh, virtually any place in the mm -hmm. world. And we continue to judge ourselves by our liabilities, not our assets. I think it's very true. I think um, my circuit around the country ha gives me that perspective coming here, that the assets are significant and that um, some having grown up in the Midwest like you did in a different place, uh, the, the, I sometimes wonder if it's, it's this Midwestern sort of uh, cultural norm about we don't want to brag about ourselves or we don't want to communicate what's good about us and we tend, we tend to look at what our, what our deficiencies are rather than what our, what our strengths are. And I know that, that I mentioned that we're already working on the strategic plan update. That's one of the things we think is really important to communicate uh, at this moment in time, is the, and outwardly about what our strengths are, and what we can offer 
not only you know the folks that live here, but the rest of the nation in terms of in terms of our capabilities. So that's going to be something we're going to really be focusing on. I think in the next three years is this outward uh, messaging. And I, I, my, I often wonder, can we get the folks in Lansing and the folks sitting in our universities to truly understand what you just said? Um, I think that's the first the first trick of this. Um, and. I think it's it's time the market demands some action. Yeah, and I also in that vein, the particularly in the university side, um, how do we uh, we're, we're educating people that are that that are, are spreading out all over the world? How can we get, have more of them stay here and impact impact our problems? So right. that's a, the, another element uh, that we're going to try in our own small way about how do we get the the young people here at the University of Michigan more of them understanding. Uh, how they can make a career here and how they can make a difference, which is important to these generations presently about their jobs, you can make a difference here. And I, I think our university, our, our three tier one research universities have done a, a really great job of starting to move differently into community and mm -hmm. to make those pushes. I'm, I'm alarmed by the bureaucratic battle internally sometimes to have those programs that the leadership put forward actually come to a, yeah. a useful fruition. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. So we're we're one of the things I think is great about about Spark and and, and our effort is because we have um, all those stakeholders around the table. We've been able to to kind of break down some of those barriers. But you're right. There's there's a lot more to be done in that area. Well, thanks. I want to thank you very much for coming in and talking it's today. It's always a pleasure. Very uh, excited uh, about the the annual meeting and yeah. uh, continue to be thrilled with the work Spark's doing. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations on Economic Opportunity. We hope you'll like and share the content you heard today. For additional podcasts and information about Spark, visit annarborusa.org.